In December of 2015, Russian developer NIL Entertainment published Survival Island 3 for iOS and Android. It was a 3D first-person action game where the player has to survive in the Australian outback by crafting weapons and hunting animals. But the game was overtly racist in its representation of Indigenous Australians. The game's mechanics gave the player the ability to kill Aboriginal people, which its marketing and app store listings openly promoted as a feature. And it grossly portrayed Indigenous people as primitive, aggressive and violent. The backlash, though, was strong and immediate. A Change.org petition inspired over 80,000 signatures, and Survival Island 3 was hastily pulled from the App Store and Google Play in January of 2016. On one hand, the quick response to something like this shows how far we've come, and that people will unite against injustice and can work together to produce a positive result. But as a country, Australia still has a long way to go. Indigenous Australians continue to face discrimination and violence every day. And these kinds of dehumanising depictions in the media we consume only encourages this discrimination and disregards the human rights of First Nations people. The fact that the Survival Island game was approved and a petition was even needed to remove it is deeply concerning. But as a countermeasure, digital media has great potential to provide opportunities for education and preservation of Indigenous cultures. I obviously think digital media plays a very important part for that. And uh, I think tradition and very cultural ways always play a very important part in many Indigenous cultures, at least in Torres Strait culture. But something that I also do want to see is new ways of expressing culture. Although we can carry on culture in very traditional forms and it will continue on in that way and we're going to try and do that, culture is not something that's static it kind of changes and it shifts, it melds, it like intermixes with other things. And sometimes you end up with something brand new, but there's remnants of the old there. This is Rhett Loban, a lecturer at Macquarie University in Sydney and a Torres Strait Islander. So the Torres Straits is located in far north Queensland and it's between Cape York, which is the northernmost tip of Australia, and Papua New Guinea. So in between there, there's a collection of islands, um, and that's the Torres Straits. Rhett's work revolves around games-based learning and virtual reality, and in 2015, he set out to make a VR game that celebrates Torres Strait Islander culture. I'm James Parkinson from Lawson Media. This is Gameplay, stories about video games and the virtual worlds that power culture and community. Virtual reality is still an emerging technology, and in 2015, Rhett Loban was excited by its potential as it was becoming more accessible, and this coincided with him teaching at University of New South Wales. And during that time period, I was also um, set up to teach a course at UNSW where I had to create kind of simulations or kind of interactive environments. So I was learning, um, I was learning how to not create games necessarily, but create interactive environments. Uh, So VR was coming out, I had just learnt these skills, and 
I had a look at these things and then I thought, hmm, nobody's really done anything in terms of Indigenous media, but let alone kind of media about the Torres Straits. Um, so I had kind of this knowledge that I had, a little bit about Torres Strait knowledge. I had a little bit about how to design those kind of interactive environments. VR was a new medium. And I feel like Indigenous storytelling and for me, Indigenous, the ways of learning in some Indigenous communities are kind of very experiential uh, and interactive. Um, so these kinds of things combined together for me and it made me come up with the idea that perhaps I could in communicate Torres Strait culture um, through this medium and then it would be kind of a nice fit from my perspective. Rhett submitted a proposal to UNSW and was given approval to develop his game, which he called Torres Strait Virtual Reality. It kind of was difficult at first because I'd never made a game before or kind of a large interactive environment like that. Um, so I tried to base it around a cultural um, kind of cultural things within the Torres Strait. So the main storyline of the Torres Strait virtual reality is that you're collecting different things for a tombstone opening. So a tombstone opening in the Torres Straits is kind of after somebody's died. You have this end of a mourning period, but it's an event where there's you'll have singing, you'll have dancing, um, and you'll also have a feast as well. Uh, so my approach was kind of basing it around this um, journey where you're going and getting different things for, for the tombstone. Um, and of course, when with the tombstone, um, in the tombstone opening, everyone's kind of assigned different responsibilities. Um, so whether you're collecting the food or different items for the tombstone opening, or maybe you're cooking, or maybe you're one of the, uh, um, the dance groups that are there, people kind of have a different roles that they have to do. So it's your role in the game to collect some items from the tombstone opening and some food as well. So that's kind of how I was trying to base it around some sort of story or some sort of cultural event that was unique to the Torres Strait and that was significant. Development took place over a couple of years, as Rhett was also undertaking his PhD in media studies at the same time. Making your own game is somewhat easier these days, but VR has its own challenges, and with limited skills and a small budget, Rhett relied a lot on free assets available online. So I used Unreal Engine 4 because that's what I learned when I was teaching interactive design. And of course, I'm, I'm not like a person who can create 3D models necessarily, uh, so a lot of what I was doing, because I had uh, a certain amount of funds for the project, I was strategically utilising things that I could download or different assets that I could get, and I would use them in the in the game where I could. It's an island setting, but there are, of course, loads of islands around the world, so there were a lot of assets online available for that. So I could use kind of different things like that. But um, where there are culturally specific sorts of things, I did little things to try and kind of work around that. So um, there was Torres Strait Elder on the project and he drew some pictures of different constellations that we have in the Torres Strait as well. And I essentially used those to turn them into 3D objects and then I turned them into constellations that we can then put up into the sky. And, of course, they're not exact, but um, they're kind of the interpretation of what it is. And then I also had two students of mine that were helping me as well. I got one of them to kind of craft little things 
that we associate with the Trimston opening. So we have um, a certain harpoon in Throw Straits called a WAP, and I was getting him to craft those little spears or the harpoon, and I also got him to craft a tombstone as well, so to kind of indicate that. So that was kind of my approach to creating the game, is that I would try and leverage kind of generic things that a lot of islands have, but then when there were culturally specific things, I would kind of craft them in certain ways or get my student to craft little things as well. Um, And of course, you add extra flavor to the game through the story. So when you're going through the game, the story is told to you where it's Torres Strait Elder telling you as you kind of go through the story and you're told the little bits about the culture um, that are there as well. So that's kind of how I went about doing the back end is was utilising a lot of stuff off the internet, but then when it came to culturally specific things, I was doing little things to insert them in. Rhett encountered the typical technical problems as well, like bugs and glitches, and often had to problem-solve or seek out help from forums and other resources. But he also experienced some real limitations in the assets he had access to. Finding plants and animals and other environmental objects wasn't an issue. But there are no people in TSVR, because 3D models that accurately represent Indigenous people just don't exist. So one of the issues that I kind of had was that Torres Strait Island people and Aboriginal people, Indigenous people generally, aren't really represented in games. And this goes the same for things like 3D models and if you want to build a game world. If I want to build a Japanese game world, I can do that. There's all the models online, you can put them together, that's fine. You want to do that for like a place in the US or somewhere in another Western country, you can do that. All these kind of things are online. Um, These things aren't really available for Torres Strait Islanders or even Indigenous people generally. So although the game is about Torres Strait culture, you won't find any people in the game because there aren't any kind of assets available online. So that was kind of one of the big barriers because I there were assets available of all sorts of other cultures, but I wouldn't want to put a model that doesn't really culturally represent a Torres Strait person in there. So my design decision around that was just not to have anyone and that I would use other elements to communicate culture. So it's like another obstacle to make the game. I feel like um, for, for different things, it's like a compounding obstacle because... There's none of those assets available, whether it's people, cultural objects, story characters, whatever it may be. The game itself is, un- is unique because there's not that much out there. Um, it, is, it is a compounding sort of thing where it's, it's more difficult because we can't have access to those things. These limitations forced Rhett to narrow the scope of the project, but having a clear vision for the game allowed him to include as many cultural elements as possible. The result is a game that's educational and interactive. So when you put on the headset, you'll be put into kind of a movie theatre almost, and you'll be told um, that a relative has um, passed away and it's your responsibility to collect kind of different items for the tombstone opening. Um, So you'll start off on Mobiag Island and you kind of find your way around there and Mobiag is kind of where one of my family lineage comes from. You'll kind of go through a little bit of a tutorial. There are like signs telling you um, how to move around, what to do. The elder is also telling you what to do in the background as well. 
um, and you're going through there. I've made the checkpoints for each games in terms of campfires. Um, now, they are short checkpoints between them, um, but I've made them in terms of campfire. So once you get to the first campfire, that's when um, the screen goes blank and then you'll kind of be told you need to go to um, Oigu Island to collect some kind of different cultural artifacts from Papua New Guinean traders. And then the day and night cycle of the game kicks off from there. So you'll then you'll look up to the sky and then you'll see kind of the different constellations in the sky. And then you continue on your journey. So the first part is kind of an introductory to the game and how to move around um, and then setting you off on the first things that you need to get on uh, Boigu Island. TSVR isn't open-ended, but it does allow the player to explore the game world and go at their own pace. So some people could complete it in like 20 minutes and that would be um, enough. Some people can are in there for like an hour or more because they often end up going onto the side routes or onto kind of different islands that have all the story characters. So they kind of find those. If you jump in the ocean, you'll kind of find all these different marine life as well. So um, it depends on kind of the route they take and whether they wander off onto like different sidetracks. Um, it also actually depends on well is whether on whether the people can kind of stomach the virtual reality as well, because some people um, put it on for two minutes and they have to go out because they can't they can't necessarily handle it. Um, so that's kind of one of the elements as well that determined whether they were there. The, the other thing was, um, I started this when VR was quite early. So Torres Strait Virtual Reality uses a controller, like an Xbox controller to move around. And what we find is that that can cause an issue for some people because their body doesn't synchronize with what their digital body is doing. So um, you, the time you spend in there kind of varied on whether you were doing what you did in the game and how you reacted to virtual reality as well. While virtual reality isn't perfect, Rhett says it was the obvious choice for TSVR to provide a more interactive and immersive way for the player to experience Torres Strait culture. Yeah, I had always kind of set my eye on virtual reality. I really like the experiential nature of virtual reality. So I had visions, you know, whether they kind of met them or not, but I had visions of when I was starting off that I would go into the game and I could look up at the stars and I could look up at the constellations and I would see the different, some of the things there in the, some of the story characters in the sky. And I thought that was really cool. And I had this vision where that you would go through the island and you would be in that first person perspective there and you would see different things and you would go through there and that would be an experience in itself. So I had always set my eye on kind of virtual reality because I had like very much liked that idea. Um, and like I said, it, it matched with kind of a lot of like kind of Torres Strait ways of learning. Uh, and I had liked that way of learning just by walking through the game and kind of being there uh, and seeing different things and hearing things um, and being in that place. I had always really liked that idea. I would say that it's got game elements in there where you're moving around and there are different characters that you kind of see and you'll be told stuff by the narrator in the background. 
but I would probably say it might even lean towards more towards the accessibility element in there because there were there were points in there where I was thinking it'd be cool to have like a survival element or a survival component in it so you could go do traditional ways of hunting and traditional ways of gaining food or um, you might get plants or fruits and stuff like that um, but then I thought it won't tied well with kind of learning and kind of the purpose of what I wanted to do, which was communicate the cultural elements. So, I mean, obviously, if it was like a normal non-VR game, these things might work out quite well. Um, but for a game like Torres Strait Virtual Reality, I had to go more towards the way of kind of simplifying it for people just to pick it up and play it. So I had considered inserting and having kind of more traditional gamey elements but um, I erred on that side because of the where I was going to implement it in terms of education. TSVR is what's called a serious game. Games that are intended for things like education or health and well-being. Basically anything outside pure entertainment. And after the break, we look at how Torres Strait virtual reality was implemented in classrooms. We also examine the problems when games portray historical events at the expense of Indigenous peoples. That's next on Gameplay. As an independent podcast, listener support is incredibly important for gameplay. So if the show is valuable to you, please consider becoming a gameplay member. Memberships are just five US dollars a month or 50 US dollars a year. You'll receive an ad-free podcast feed, bonus content, and I'll personally send you a gameplay sticker pack. There is a free tier as well if you're not in a position to contribute monetarily, but if you can, you'll be actively helping to make the podcast sustainable so I can continue to bring you stories you care about. Sign up now at gameplay.co slash membership. Thanks. Rhett Loebman's intention behind Torres Strait Virtual Reality was always to implement the game in a classroom setting, and he did so in a few different ways, including game development and Indigenous education. One class, they had to develop a manual game prototype for um, a client, and this client, they would have been interested in kind of like new tech and um, those sorts of things and new ways of communicating. So we had used my game as a kind of an exemplar for game design because um, it was obviously a game for learning, but it was also a game that leveraged new technology as well. So that was for the game design class. And then we used it in an Indigenous cultural class or an Indigenous um, introduction to Indigenous culture. And we used the game as kind of like a exemplar for a new way to communicate culture. And another class used TSVR to discuss the process around working with Indigenous communities. So for that one, the lecturer had this approach to what he called the politics of process. 
And that was his approach to Indigenous education. And with that, um, whenever you go into Indigenous communities, or at least Torres Strait communities, um, there are certain protocols and processes that you have to follow. And they're quite, they're quite democratic. Um, it's getting the community's perspectives. Sometimes you can go ahead and do things yourself. But normally we try to take a more equitable and democratic approach where we get people's different perspectives and we go through that process and then at the end of that you come up with some sort of consensus or decision because you've gone through and you've talked to kind of like different people in the community and you know you do that in um, sometimes when you're in education as well and when you're dealing with Indigenous people and he wanted to communicate that and with my game it was no different either because when I was going through it um, I was getting input from obviously our elder, um, different organisations, both inside and outside the university, different various Indigenous people, the students who were playing it, they were telling me things as well. Um, so I was going through this um, process of consultation and I was going through the proper protocols that I have to for um, for my culture. And so the, the good thing about this was though, if you're making a game as well, you have to go through a quality assurance process as well, making sure that you get any bugs out and those sorts of things and how you can improve upon the game. This sort of process was very similar to the cultural consultation process in the sense that I had to talk to kind of different people and see what they thought and then integrate that into, into the game. So I found out by going through the the quality assurance process and the playtesting process and through the cultural consultation process, they synchronised into kind of one, one process that worked quite well. So I was talking to the students about how when I was going through the game and through this sort of process, I was doing the console consultation at the same time. That's kind of the message that I was putting forth for that class is that they have to kind of do these things when they're going in schools and they have to go through these processes when they're dealing with Indigenous people. And it's no different for my medium as well or in my industry. I still have to go through these things. Even though I'm a Torres Strait person and I have my family and everything, um, there are still these processes that you kind of have to go through and you have to adhere to and that are important for the, for the culture and for the community. Rhett says that watching people play TSVR confirmed to him how impactful this kind of experience can be, helping them connect with Indigenous culture in a whole new way. I had one Torres Strait person come. Um, she was an, uh, an older woman. She, she quite enjoyed it. Um, we had students come in who were like 16. They weren't necessarily Torres Strait, but they were Aboriginal. They came in and they enjoyed it as well. It was something very new for them. For some of them, even if they weren't Torres Strait, they could kind of see some sort of Indigenous representation in the game, things that would be important to them. So seeing things like about the sea or sharks or crocodiles or those sorts of things, seeing these in the game and in an Indigenous context, I think could be quite important for some people. So for me, um, my totem is um, dugong and crocodile. Seeing those things in the context of the game in the Torres Strait environment is quite important for me. Um, so I think some of the kids, they really enjoyed seeing the, the wildlife, but in an Indigenous context, it was kind of important as well because it's that actual link on country. 
Rhett is a big believer in the ability for games and other forms of digital media to take on the role of sharing and preserving tradition and culture in new and evolving ways. He says there needs to be a shift to a digital mindset in the ways we teach and learn visually and experientially. It's an idea that's becoming increasingly important for current and future generations, and not just for Indigenous communities, but for everyone. And for Rhett, this approach comes from a Torres Strait Islander concept called the cultural tree. So the cultural tree in Torres Strait culture, and at least for my family as well, um, we see culture as a tree. So at the bottom of the tree, you have your roots. And for me, in terms of culture, this is representative of kind of old culture or very traditional forms of culture. Could be singing, could be dance, could be storytelling, those kind of um, very traditional ways that we've kind of embodied culture in the Torres Straits. When you go up the tree and out at the top comes kind of like all these different branches, you have um, kind of like new forms of culture or culture that's been remixed. So um, this could include things like, you know, movies or games in virtual reality. Um, so for me, this kind of tree, I see my place sit- sitting in the tree is kind of one of those branches is because I've tried to take from the kind of traditional elements and I've tried to represent them in the game somehow, whether, you know, that's kind of those story characters or maybe kind of little bits of traditional knowledge about the environment or representing kind of, you know, the landscape. So some islands are kind of a little bit different to others. Some are have more rocks on them. Other ones um, will have um, kind of a different landscape. So the Torres Strait tree is kind of, it's how I see and how some of my family sees culture and how it's transformed and represented kind of in different ways. And how, although the medium is new, it's been remixed a little bit, there's still that core culture that it draws from and that feeds into that new culture, new cultural representations like games or virtual reality. So that's kind of what the the cultural tree is for me. It's a representation of how culture changes, but there are always kind of like traditional elements there and that the new forms of culture draw upon from the old. Rhett grew up playing a lot of traditional games for entertainment as well, and he has a particular interest in grand strategy games, so much so that he based his PhD around them. So my PhD was looking at how we can teach history through um, grand strategy games and whether kind of new forms of gaming practices, or maybe not even new, but um, uncommon forms of gaming practices such as modding uh, are useful kind of learning Uh, exercises or ways of learning. The research showed that modding did prove to be a more useful way of learning history through the game, offering more opportunities for creative engagement. But the findings also acknowledge the educational limitations of games based on history. There are often inaccuracies and grand strategy games in particular usually portray history from a very narrow and colonial perspective. And that brings up a lot of problems with how First Nations people are represented. With, say, for example, Euro- European Universalis, uh, there's very visual ways of that it sets out the game and there's a lot of maps that they use. And so what I had found through my game, my own game experiences with Europa Universalis, 
uh, I had learned a lot about kind of like geography and places in the world, different resources and all these sorts of things. And uh, so I, I, when I was going through these things I and playing the game and playing out the game, um, I was learning a lot about where things were in the world, where people were and these borders. But of course, the way that the game is designed, it's based on building an empire and there's a lot of imperialistic and Eurocentric elements to the game, how empires expanded. Almost always the new world will be colonized by European powers. So it's these these sorts of games, they're good at telling you kind of the geography elements and maybe broader elements of how history um, turned out and the broader themes of history, but they reinforce it from a certain perspective that these processes were good things or you play them out wanting to do those things in game because you want to win the game, right? So you want to expand and you want to find out how to get as much resources and you want to find out, um, you know, um, how you can win the game. And so these are the tools that you have to use to win the game or to more or less beat it because there's no necessarily end goal, but for you to win it per se, you, you have to do these things. Indigenous people more or less aren't reflected. They're kind of, in, in a normal game, you can interact with a nation, you can form some sort of diplomacy, you can make alliances with them, you can trade with them, you can do all these sorts of things. But essentially, those lands are there just to be colonised. So they kind of reinforce these really harmful or these really problematic ideas whether the game developers intentionally do this or not, they're kind of reinforcing these attitudes through their games, I feel, to some extent. So are these kinds of strategy games inherently problematic for allowing the player to carry out acts of colonisation? Or is there an alternative approach to making these games that's respectful of Indigenous people? Yeah, that's a hard question. It, it may be that certain games may be more predisposed towards, or some, certain topics may be more predisposed towards other kinds of games. Because, like, I, I made a mod for the game called Indigenous People of Oceania, and I inserted Torres Strait nations in, and I inserted, tried to insert and represent other Indigenous nations in the game as well. Um, but the issue there becomes then, although I can play as a Torres Strait nation or another Indigenous nation in the mod, which I created for the game, um, you still have to conform to the same rules that are inherently ingrained in the game where you have to expand, otherwise you you kind of die out or you lose the game. And that's not to say that there aren't... There are, like, other options there where you can trade and you become the richest nation and, you know, that's a strategy in itself. But as a general sort of thing, you still have to conform to this empire, what a lot of people on the forums call um, map painting sort of thing where you're just painting the map in your nation's colour. So they can, these sorts of things could be represented in games, but it's hard for grand strategy if grand strategies are predominantly built on having an empire and then, you know, expanding it and through whatever tools, whether it's trade or military conquest or diplomacy or those sorts of things. Do you know what I mean? I suppose what they're doing is historic, but it's from the perspective of the people doing it. It's something that's kind of actively encouraged in the game because you have to do it. 
Even if you can have, like I said, the Torres Strait nation, what it's been pushing is kind of what we're trying to work against in, in education and providing more different kind of different perspectives, you know what I mean, on history and different perspectives on um, how the past happened. Grand strategy games are fairly niche, but they still have very active and passionate communities. So even if they tend to fly under the radar in how they portray historical events and represent Indigenous peoples, it's important that they're not exempt from criticism. And just from like an educational perspective as well, um, I think in education we're even trying to train up students to be media literate as well. So it's just not accepting whatever's there, but actually being quite critical of it and understanding that whatever it is, whether it's games, uh, movies, whatever, news even, um, that you're critical of that and that you're kind of, um, you're just aware of the biases that are there and, and what's being said. Of course, Rhett Loban says he wants to see more positive representations of Indigenous people in video games. But he says game developers have to ensure they go about things the right way. You have to involve the community or you'd want to have some a little bit of input from the community when you're creating games or you're wanting to represent Indigenous people. So um, fairer representations and more representation if we can, if possible. There was a really good version, there was a really good approach that, do you, do you remember um, Age of Empires 3? In the original game, there was a lot of um, criticism for them in the way that they portrayed um, Native Americans and different tribes there. They used like the fire pit. Um, there was there was issues around that because um, they weren't representing the actual way that different Native American tribes would have used the fire pit, and there were kind of like very stereotypical elements in there. But they had um they had a quite a good approach where when they released the deluxe or the updated version of it, um, they were working in consultation with Native American tribes that were depicted in the game. And I think they pl- were, they swapped out the fire pit, which they used for like um, a market, a marketplace, which would have been more historically accurate and it's more culturally authentic as well. So it's not beyond the realm of developers. Um, so more representations and fairer representations of Indigenous people is something that I would kind of want, uh, particularly for in Australia as well, where we're basically not depicted or we're depicted in kind of those very kind of really awful ways. Thanks so much to Rhett Loban. This episode was inspired by an article from Rhett published in The Guardian. There's a link to that in the episode description and on our website, gameplay.co. TSVR isn't publicly available, but if you'd like to check it out, we also have a link to the trailer. I'd also like to take this opportunity to acknowledge all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, the traditional custodians of the land, and pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. I acknowledge that sovereignty has never been ceded, it always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Gameplay is a production of Lawson Media. This episode was written and produced by me, James Parkinson. The gameplay theme was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. Our artwork is by Keegan Sanford and additional music from Blue Dot Sessions and Breakmaster Cylinder. 
You can follow the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Gameplay Podcast. We're also on YouTube and we have a Discord. So come and join the community where you can discuss the show and talk games with me and other listeners. You'll find the link to join plus episode transcripts and further reading on our website, gameplay.co. Thanks for listening.